0: Welcome to the podcast, Pablo. Um, now, you are a geologist. Uh, what kind of geologist are you?
1: I'm a, I guess I'll say I'm a sedimentologist. Um, um, it's a geologist who deals mainly with the sedimentary rocks. Um, but even that is, um, is a, very, um, a very wide field.
0: Do you uh, specialize in any kind of sedimentology?
1: Um, not really. I, I specialize into um, I specialize in looking at um, petrophysical properties of uh, sedimentary rocks, um, which is um how the, um how the, um grains are arranged to form uh, um, to make up properties such as uh, porosity and permeability and um, and the um, uh, mineralogy of those uh of those rocks
0: um what's your background what did you study to get into this field
1: i did an undergrad in geology um then while i was in um, undergrad i had a chance to work as a research assistant with a uh, sedimentology and stratigraphy uh, professor um then i got into the um, energy industry um which i could then apply um that knowledge to um looking for um oil and gas resources and now now i'm i just finished my phd um specializing even more into the petrophysics
0: of this uh, type of rocks congratulations phd is quite a feat did you do that all here at ubc or
1: um no it was entire it was entirely done at ubc with um, my supervisor mark busting
0: um what got you into uh geology and sedimentology? Why did you choose that field? um in a way, I was kind of led into um
1: this field um by pursuing opportunities um and getting more and more specialized but i I think the yeah, I think the turning point was um I had this um uh, funny cuz in undergrad I actually uh, when I first started undergrad I wanted to go into hard rock so um study igneous and metamorphic um and mineral resources and um this this kind of um um path but then I, I had this chance of going um of working as a research assistant for this professor uh, which is really my first um uh, mentor um in geology um back in Brazil where I did my undergrad professor U- 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 Ubiratan um so he had he gave me this opportunity and then um he was uh he was a really good mentor um he really taught me a lot about science um and then we had this um project that was sponsored by the uh, brazilian oil company and they um because they pump a lot of money in research we had this chance to work with this um like really interesting technology and looking at kilometers of uh, um, deposition of rocks with a, um 3D seismic and like looking at tomographies, um, tomography images of the Earth, um, and all that technology, I think kind of attracted me.
0: Wonderful. I know that Brazil is very mineral rich. Uh, the The Minas Gerais uh, regions provided many of our specimens here, um, but I didn't didn't know they had a lot of oil and gas
1: yeah it's not it's yeah i think it's probably one of the top ten or fifteen producers in the world
0: wow that's impressive uh now I know that many people have a very uh circuitous career path um have you faced any setbacks or uh periods of doubt
1: not not nothing major just um yeah i i, I wouldn't call a setback but um i was um i think my my phd was a sort of a a drastic change of gears i didn't think i would be going for a phd um I, i had a i had a undergrad i had a master's and i was in the in a more or less um steady um career path in the industry and then the chance to come to canada appeared and um phd was um going back to school and getting a phd was a natural choice and then i had now i find myself in a crossroads um and i had i have to take a new direction um but yeah that that is not exactly a setback but it's it's a it's a uh, yeah it's i'll say it's a crossroads
0: yeah no that's absolutely understandable and i mean you finished your phd in the middle of covid so um, yeah or hopefully at the tail end of covid I should yeah (laughs) let's hope so now in your studies, um, have you discovered anything you care to share? It's, um, it's,
1: yeah, it's after five years of doing a PhD, it's hard to, um, it's hard to feel excited about anything, but, um, um, yeah, w- one of the, one of the main, um, my PhD was a collection of like, guess, like most PhDs these days, um, it's a collection of, uh loser related loosely related um um studies um with a common thread and w- one of those um chapters was uh, uh we use uh, basic modeling um algorithm to model how the um sediments were deposited um in the western canada sedimentary Basin, which is a, a basin of uh rocks that got deposited over um Five hundred million years in the uh, northeastern British Columbia and Alberta, and um with this model we use um, um data to um to calibrate um, and um, estimate how much rock um, was deposited and subsequently eroded, so we have no record of it but uh we know they're there because um the the maturity the thermal maturity indicator which is a a um a sort of a clock um that records the maximum depth that those rocks were buried and and consequently the uh maximum temperature they experience is a lot uh the te- those temperatures are a lot uh, hotter than the present day temperature so we know they've been buried at much higher depths than they are t- today so with that we can estimate that there's about four um four kilometers four to five kilometers of rock or sediment that were, was litified into rock that got deposited on top of the um on top of the rocks that i was studying which is the triassic um period of about 240 million years ago so the, this four, this extra 4 or 5 kilometers of rock were deposited um about between 60 and 50 million years ago um when the um the, the Laramide orogeny that created the Rocky Mountains um started um causing a very high subsidence rate um um the position and subsidence rate uh, due to the weight of the mountains, and then after the uplift of the Rocky Mountains, those uh, four or five kilometers of rock were um, eroded and completely um, carried away by erosion.
0: That's really interesting. So you're saying that these rocks still carry um, the scorches of heat uh, from being buried up to four kilometers, and you can, by reading those heat si- uh, signatures, you can tell that they were that deep.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: That's a really interesting application of your science. Um why weren't they metamorphosized with all that heat?
1: Um why why they were metamorphosized?
0: Yeah, why are they still sedimentary rocks? Why weren't they baked?
1: Oh, they they um the temperatures are not they're not a metamorphic range. The temperatures they were exposed um at were um probably um hundred and twenty to hundred and forty maximum temperature. Um so the 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 um, it's called organic metamorphism so it's uh it's in the the, the petroleum generating um window of uh, temperatures it's not in the the metamorphic um range uh so it's still sedimentary but the organic the organic matter went through uh organic matter um changes start happening um really fast after they, they've been buried and the organic matter um turns into a, a product called kerogen which is a organic polymer uh, a really long chain of organic polymers and that when they, they get buried further and further that that those kerogen chains is what uh, breaks down to form uh smaller chains of oil and even smaller chains of uh um when they form even smaller chains they they become gas um but yeah but not not hot enough to be um to be metamorphic
0: cool you left out one discovery. Uh, I've actually got it hanging in, in my office right now. Uh, I think it's really cool that you found a microscopic ammonite uh, when you were doing some thin section testing.
1: Yeah, that, that was yeah. That's probably the coolest thing about my PhD, and probably the thing I'm most proud of. And is it was your um, pure serendipity. I was I was I had about seventy think sections done of my rocks to look at like really boring stuff like um how the grains are arranged to form porosity so it's 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 really uh it's actually really boring a lot long hours looking at the microscope but the same thing just grains of quartz and, and pore space and and by pure serendipity i one of those think sections came back, uh, which is a phosphatic rock, which is actually the, the pro- probably the coolest uh, type of rock from a PhD. Uh, is this, this basal interval of my uh, formation that's composed of a lot of phosphate grains. And um, yeah, one of, one of them came back with a really tiny um, ammonite of about probably two millimeters diameter, two three millimeters diameter. Um, and even with that small size, you can see all the chambers, uh, which are filled by silt and, uh, calcite and a little bit of phosphate too. Um, and that, yeah, that became a poster in the museum now.
0: <laughs> and just, uh, for reference, what's a thin section and what's an ammonite?
1: Um, a, a thin section is, is a, a very, so you, you get a piece of rock, um, and because those, when, when you want to look at the rock, um, under a microscope, you make a thin section Uh, which is a very, um, you cut a thin slab of rock and then you polish, you grind it further and further down uh, to make a very thin, um, effectively a section of rock. And then uh, because it's thin and rock is uh, semi-translucent, you can uh, shine a light under the microscope and look at the crystals and and the pore space in my case. Um, And then you uh, you can analyze a lot of different properties by looking at that yeah ammonite is a fossil um it's a coil shaped um shell and it's a major group of fossils uh, of organisms that lived um in the um, until the i think the La- the cretaceous extinction um but don't quote me on that because i'm not a paleontologist but i think yeah i think they all went extinct um at the end of cretaceous 65 million years ago and the clo- they're co- they resemble a living organism called nautilus, nautilus um uh which is which is, yeah which is we can still find today in, in today's oceans
0: excellent well thanks to your keen eyes we uh we've got a beautiful poster now um so that's what you were working on before what are you doing your postdoc degree in um my postdoc now it's a
1: i'm looking at um distribution of hydrogen sulfide in the um, in the western canada sedimentary basin in west um northeast bc and um and uh, and alberta so how how hydrogen sulfide was um generated by the thermochemical sulfate reduction of um of sulfur components um and how it um how the geologic history of the barrier of the basin um can may explain the distribution of uh, sulfate in today's um, rocks.
0: And why are you doing this? Why um, why are you concerned about the distribution of sulfates?
1: It's um, so hydrogen sulfide is is a very highly corrosive gas. Um, when you produce um, hydrocarbon gases um, from wells, and you have hydrogen sulfide, it's a it's a major um, it's a major concern because they can can corrode the pipes and um if it's not handled um it can cause a lot of hazard and health um issues uh to workers and
0: um and communities and and uh, environment that sounds very important <laughs> now um one of the things that i love about this interview series is hearing about field stories um it seems that the field is just a really exciting place where uh, crazy and sometimes scary, but also sometimes funny uh, things happen. Do you have any field stories that you'd care to share?
1: Um, yeah, my, my my PhD was uh, sort of lame in that aspect because um, I spent most of my quote-unquote field um, time just stuck in a warehouse you know, where they keep all those uh, core samples. Um, so I didn't look at outcrops. I didn't go out in the field to collect samples. My my PhD was entirely based on, uh, on core. Um, so I guess the most um, surprising thing I had in the field was in the last of, after three or four weeks um, in the core warehouse where I was looking at samples and um, choosing the samples that I wanted to bring to UBC, to my lab, to uh, analyze. Um, there was a lab technician that cut those, uh, samples for me as, as I went and the saw broke in the last week. Um, uh, so we couldn't cut any more samples and it was for St. John, um, like three, like let's say almost 2000 kilometers, um, from not, not almost, um, let's say probably, no, probably a thousand kilometers from here. Um. And then he couldn't cut samples anymore. So the solution was, well, luckily I, I had gone through 70% of my the rocks that I was going to go through. Um, so the solution was to load probably about a ton, uh, one ton of rock, uh, whole core samples into the back of my truck and then drive back to EBC to cut myself here in the lab. So there was, there was a lot of inertia um, in that truck. It's hard to stop, hard to start.
0: Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But, um, yeah, in, in my undergrad, we did a lot of, uh, field work, um, for field schools and mapping projects. And yeah, I think the most exciting, um, exhilarating experience in the field was when we were mapping a very wide, um, open area, um, as the south of Brazil is, um, and there was an electrical storm that started it was me and my um me and my colleague at the time, and um, there was a farmland so there's a lot of um uh, wire fences. And we had to jump through a lot of them during an electrical storm to uh, find cover, and then we'll, we'll try to keep an eye on the lightness and try to time our uh, jumps over electric fences that might extend for kilometers um just between lightning so we wouldn't get electrocuted if one of the
0: fences were hit by a lightning (laughs) wow that is really intense (laughs) uh do you find um i mean you mentioned you haven't done much field work here in canada but uh what is field work in brazil like i know that uh here in canada everyone talks about bears but what do you have to deal with in brazil
1: uh mostly being shot um there's there's a lot of um I guess deep deeply rooted social inequality problems with uh land access and distribution. There's a lot of um there's a strong social movement which has been politicized and weaponized, unfortunately. Um but there's a strong social movement of uh um land occupation by um people destituted of land. Um and they almost always wear red so one of the things we were told by uh, professors and staff were do not wear red when you go out in the field and always talk to the anyone you see to ask if they are the owners or the caretakers and say explain what you're doing because they might not even have heard of geology before Uh, and make it clear you're not trying to invade their land wow yeah so you you don't want to you don't want to wear red uh when doing field work in brazil (laughs)
0: Every region has its challenges. We've got bears, uh, you've got the color red. (laughs) Uh, Now, your work does sound interesting. Um, What's your favorite part of your work?
1: Yeah, like I said, after five years of PhD, it's um, really hard to have a favorite part or be excited about anything. That's fair.
0: Many
1: people say that. Yeah, right now I'm I'm really jaded, but um, yeah, throughout my PhD, I I think the most exciting thing i did was um um using scm um uh, scanning electron microscope um to look at some of my some of those uh phosphate samples that i um i told you about earlier um so a scanning electron microscope you can create an image by shooting electrons um onto a very small very very small um piece of sample and looking at highly um magnified um image of it. So we 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 imaged uh and it was a technology that I had never I mean I've seen images before but I never used it myself uh never operated an instrument before and I never actually um had to look at one of those images and 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 try to find things it was it was more of a curiosity back um back before my PhD and um we use that um instrument to analyze those um each individual phosphate grains of the the phosphate interval of my uh, of my formation um and then we we we, we uh, with this highly magnified image we look at those individual grains um and could tell that they have um they're re- recorded multiple episodes that um probably each each individual grain had probably hundreds of thousands of years of history recorded because um, they're very slow forming um, grains of phosphate forming by precipitation of layer after layer after layer and each layer is um, few microns or a thousand thousands of a millimeter thick. And sometimes they have uh, rough borders, which are uh, records of erosion of periods that were not precipitating, but instead they were being rolled around and, and uh, eroded. And then they'll eventually be redeposited um, and then uh, precipitation would start again. So, yeah, so each grain had hundreds of thousands of years of recorded history. And those things, we're talking about things that were um, sometimes a fraction of a millimeter Uh, in diameter
0: it sounds like you're doing the opposite of carbon dating instead of measuring the decay of an element you're measuring the growth of of certain crystals um and seeing the the history
1: yeah although we we didn't have um we didn't use any dating um but we know from the um from other studies of how those grains are formed that they, they form very slowly um so we didn't have any any um age range um But, um, yeah, we, we can, we can see the multiple episodes of growth.
0: That's really amazing. (laughs) Now, of course, not everything is sunshine and roses. Um, what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work?
1: Um, I think every phase has its difficulties, um, such as in the beginning where you don't even know what you're gonna do um beginning of a phd when you don't you don't even know what you're doing um and then you have to like design a sampling program um establish an objective uh spend hours and hours and hours in the lab measuring stuff and breaking stuff and trying to fix stuff um those all come with some level of frustration uh and disappointment um but I, i i think Maybe it's because it's been a long time now. Um, or maybe it's because in the beginning you're excited and um, motivated. Uh, I think the hardest part is probably uh, somewhere halfway through the end of a PhD where you have to make a decision to stop collecting data and and uh, start analyzing and, and writing something about it. Um, so knowing when to stop measuring and collecting and getting enough confidence that you have something worthwhile to say about all of that is uh, is probably the most the most it's probably the most challenging. I'd say
0: that sounds like a problem you have to deal with with any major project. But that's a really great way of explaining um, probably the the main challenge of any PhD. Um, at what point is enough enough? <laughs>
1: Yeah, from from people I talk to, um, I think I think that's a common that's a common issue,
0: especially when you're so passionate uh, for it in the beginning. Like you said, uh, you just want to keep collecting and collecting. But and
1: also the inertia keeps you from you're already in that mode where you're highly productive, uh, measuring stuff, and um, yeah, it's hard to stop that momentum and 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 dive into something new, which is the data analysis and writing
0: now i'm curious um do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities and if so, has that impacted your uh work i
1: yeah as 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 a cisgender whitish um male i i' I'd, I'd, I'd say a short answer is no um although i i i think there's there's vastly under knowledge, um biases, um, in the community, which relate to linguistic and, uh, cultural factors, which I feel impacted me. Um, especially once I entered the the English speaking, um, um, in, in my previous industry career in a multi- multinational company and in academia, in a English speaking country. So t- I'd say things like ha having a, um, a non-anglo-saxon sounding name which which precede even visual contact when people see your name in in papers and stuff Um, and and also um i I perceive having a a foreign accent speech um as a potentially um potentially having negative impact um on my um opportunities that i would um be considered for to um so yeah i think I think it's a complex um i think it's a complex issue and it's 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 not often talked about we often talk about white versus non white and uh uh gender um but we we don't usually talk about cultural and linguistic um discrimination very much
0: and yet the irony is that you probably have a better command of the English language than I do because you're using a bunch of terms that I've never even heard of um I mean, scientific English is completely different than everyday English.
1: Yeah. Well, I wouldn't go as far as saying I have a better command of English language as you do, but, um, yeah, you're, you're right. There's there's a lot of, uh, tier three. Um, I, I also did a, um, a diploma while well, I was doing my PhD, did a d- diploma in, uh, um, teaching, la- t- teaching English a second language at EBC um, program, um, so, so tier one are the very basic words, uh, like, like usually Anglo-Saxon rooted uh, words, like two or three syllables, and then tier two are more um, less often words, and tier three is the where, where all those scientific jargon words go to. So, yeah, tier three um, words, um, I have probably have a very uh, vast vocabulary, uh, but then then I, the irony in that is that. I have, I I know all these words and I probably, because of my first, um, my native native language is Portuguese, which has a lot of Latin. I also can instantly recognize a lot of tier two words in English, which are words in Latin. Um, they have Latin roots that are not often used. Um, so there was like very typical SAT words that, um, a lot of native uh, English speakers do not know. And I, I can instantly recognize, even though I never heard them using English because they are cognates with Portuguese. but then. I often look at tier one words, which are known by any 810 10 uh, year old, um, native English speaker, and I do not know what they mean, or I do not know what they might mean in a specific, specific cultural context or, or like cultural markers, like shibboleths and, um, cultural references are different from the ones I grew up with that they, they have a large, um, degree of overlap because we are culturally dominated by, uh, um, the United States movie and music and uh, whatnot. But um, yeah, there's a lot of cultural um, references that I like not growing up in North America.
0: (laughs) To be fair, um, I hear 8 to 10-year-olds talking these days and I don't know half the words they're using. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, do you consider um, geology and sedimentology to be relatively open and welcoming fields or are they more uh, closed and insular or inward-looking?
1: No, I I think that they're they're very... um they're, they're fairly welcoming. Um, I think, I think like higher, um, higher education environments are probably, um, pretty open-minded. Um, having said all that about linguistic and cultural prejudice, I think they are welcoming There are problems. Um, um, but they're in general, they're welcoming. Um, I think in geology's. Especially or sciences, especially because it's such an internationalized uh, global field. I think we have a lot of exchange of uh, they be- they, people realize we benefit a lot by exchange of uh, ideas and, and personnel um, across universities and across academia in the industry. Um, so I think people are generally um, very open minded and interested in, in cultural exchanges.
0: Now, one thing. um that all of academia has had to deal with, all the world has had to deal with this past year has been the COVID uh, outbreak. Um, we touched on it briefly, but has it uh, impacted your research and your ability to do your work?
1: No, I was I was fortunate enough that um, by the time COVID hit, I had already um, moved my entire office setup home because I was that at that cr- crucial point of. Uh, Stopping to collect data and sitting down, and analyze, and try to make sense of it. So I had I had actually just just moved my um my um all my setup, which is just basically my computer, and I I had brought my office computer, which is a powerful workstation to do three D modeling and and such, and uh, three monitors side by side to have all different screens and um, layouts and stuff. So I had all that set up at home, probably just two three months prior um, COVID hit. And then I um I probably benefited from um the all the home office arrangements that UBC um offer during COVID. Um so impact of my work was minimal. I had to come very um not I, I didn't have to come very often to the lab um just to, to tie up some loose ends. Um but yeah, I, I didn't suffer from um my work didn't suffer.
0: It probably reinforced uh the idea that you Stopped collecting data at the right time, and uh, started your analysis at just the right moment.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I was very lucky in that aspect.
0: (laughs) You've made uh, geology and sedimentology sound really interesting. Um, What background or courses or experience would you recommend to young people listening to this who may want to follow in your footsteps? Um,
1: I I think every um, think geology courses are generally. very diverse in terms of uh courses and um those um various earth science disciplines um and they they do a good job at exposing the uh, undergrad students to um all the stuff that they may encounter in their career um so i yeah I, i wouldn't recommend any specific courses but um i think one thing that really helped me um at least helped me um help put my myself into this uh um scientific mind um uh journey. It was getting exposure to the research and lab environment very early on during undergrad. So if you have a chance to work um or even industry internships, um, getting some hands-on experience, but um there there's a lot of opportunities to work with professors um as a research assistant in the lab. And some of those um jobs, I guess a lot of the a lot of those jobs are very um uh, manual labor uh intensive and maybe boring um so just like preparing samples and running machines but um having that um starting on that path and um you benefit greatly from those um even though your job may be 70% manual labor, you have those casual um, interactions uh, with uh, graduate students and professors and um, other fellow undergrad students and, and get um, exposed, exposed to those techniques. And it opens up, I think it opens up a lot of opportunities in the future.
0: And what do you prefer? Do you prefer uh, going out into the field or doing work in a lab?
1: I think a good balance uh, is probably the best. Um, work in the lab can get really boring, Um after you learn everything there is to learn about that particular technique you're um, performing and working in the field is really exciting when also when you're in a your new area but it can also um it can also be tiring uh if you have to go back to the same place um multiple times or if you if, you, if you're out in the field for long periods of time um so i think going out in the field Getting to know a different area, collecting samples, and going back to the lab and seeing the results. Um, yeah, I, th- I think like um, with almost everything else in life, I think a good balance is
0: probably the best option. That sounds like the kind of answer I'd give. It depends on the, on the day. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, what was the most important course you took? Um,
1: I I couldn't single any course out. Um, I think geology is is a very diverse science and. Um, is a multidisciplinary one. And um, I think most of the courses that are offered in um in undergrad and uh yeah especially in undergrad courses are, are helpful um shape your overall um academic um formation and also um they help solve um they give you tools to solve this puzzle uh whichever puzzle, scientific puzzle you may uh, encounter and have to, uh, solve in the future. I think field schools are, um, generally the most fun, um, cause it's a very immersive experience. Um, and it's a very positive learning experience. Um, I guess for, for me it was, and for, I guess most people who stay entering, and in geology is, uh, a a constant, um, constant in in those uh, people's lives is the the passion for uh field work. It doesn't work for everyone, but a lot of geologists I think uh enjoy field work. So, yeah, I think field work is probably the um is, is probably the most exciting um f- field school in generally probably the most exciting course in geology.
0: Now, you've been really inspiring today. Um I'm curious, who inspired you?
1: Um I think lots of people inspire me in different ways at different times um like I said earlier, I think my um undergrad advisor and person who um gave me my first opportunity in research and set me on this path in sedimentary geology was uh, professor Rubiratán um in the in the in university in my undergrad in the south of Brazil. Sadly, his um he had a stroke. I had actually had multiple strokes. And the last one he had um uh, made him really debilitated. Um and I haven't had the chance to talk to him again since then, but uh, I still hold him very dear. Um because he, he gave me a very humbling view of science. Um and he, he, he gave me this view of science as a as an imperfect, ever evolving um field which, which is, um, the sum of, um, very small contributions by, um, innumerous individuals throughout history and not, and not like this, um, final truth, uh, dogmatic final truth. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think this is a humbling, I think it's hard to, um, it's hard not to see science as the, the one, and final truth um and and see it as as a as a field which is constantly challenging and disputing itself and it's also hard to uh we talk about a lot imposter syndrome these days um and i i've i've struggled with imposter syndrome um all my life as as as, well not all my life but at, at least as at least since i joined um this academia world and, and the, in the in the industry as well i struggle with imposter syndrome thinking my work is not worth um anything and um my skills are um um not enough uh but then very few people um throughout the history made these contributions which are really um groundbreaking um the vast majority of scientists will provide very small contributions which may not be picked up by anyone else uh, for years or decades and eventually they lead somewhere um, I guess a lot of them might be dead ends but hopefully every scientist will create some contribution which will help evolve their field uh, a little further so yeah
0: <laughs> that's certainly very relevant especially um, given the early stage of the of a- the pandemic where we we were learning more and more and sometimes contradicting um earlier uh, advisements on what to do with the pandemic uh people were saying well this is what science is it's an evolving understanding of the truth and sometimes you know we don't always get it right the first time but eventually uh we keep working towards the truth um
1: yeah thank thank th- th- thanks for bringing that up i didn't i didn't want to do um i didn't want to bring up anything contentious but that that that's something that's been in the back of my mind um this days, we talked a lot about in the context of a pandemic and also um environmental problems we talked about um a lot about the science behind all of it and a common mantra that you hear people say is um you can't argue with science well you, the whole point is you can argue with science science is about arguing um there are no um undisputable hypotheses or theories um so so yeah the 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 whole point of science is to argue and and um challenge um preconceptions and um and old um theories um when you have the facts to support it
0: now you're um as you said just coming out of your phd going into a postdoc degree you've got a long and uh, productive career ahead of you what would you like to be your legacy when you finally retire that is um uh, well, wow. yeah,
1: that that is that is a hard um, question to answer. I I don't talking about imposter syndrome like we talked about before. Um, I do. I never had, or if I had, was for a very brief um, moment. I don't have uh, any grandiose view of my career. Um, I think at the end of the day. Um, if I, if I can see that my work reflects the best of my capability and is done truthfully and honestly, I I think I can say
0: I'm proud. Um, yeah. I think that's a wonderful goal and, um, yeah, I think you're well on your way to achieving it. Now, my final question, uh, the world changes at lightning speed these days. And the field that a person enters uh, at the beginning of their career can be completely different by the time they retire. Uh, so where do you see geology and sedimentology going? And what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of those changes and get ahead of the curve?
1: Yeah, that, that, is, that is a very interesting question. It's a very important one, too. I think geology um, has changed a lot since uh, Hutton, James Hutton first stumbled upon his unconformity. Um, but the, the, the core materials we study, um, has not changed, um, ideas evolved and changed substantially and, and, um, techniques and methods have also, we had some amazing advancements in techniques and methods. Um, I would say keeping an open mind to new technology that may, may solve, uh, old problems and even new problems, um, as well as keeping a humble attitude to existing paradigms um tying back to the idea of uh, um science as an evolving and ever um challenging itself you know um and recognizing that our knowledge will never be perfect and complete um so i think that's the overall philosophical um um idea that i have for the future of geology and science and I think the, um, in terms of methods and and techniques, I think that, um, well, I guess it's pretty obvious to everyone now that uh, uh, programming and scripting um, and um, to to use a buzzword uh, data science, it would be important to a lot of fields. Um, And it's something I picked up very early on in undergrad with some programming classes. And I I, I think I regret not developing it uh, further I was very um i was very computer savvy in undergrad but for for the overall geology level uh, i was computer savvy i think it changed so fast um since i finished my undergrad in 2008 and i didn't realize i didn't like nobody really um saw that coming very few people did um if any um how important programming and automating um boring data analysis tasks via scripting would be um so i i think i kind of fell behind um the pack uh, in that aspect and i'm i'm struggling to keep up now um i use a lot i I use some some scripting to analyze the hundreds and thousands of uh files and lines of data that i had in my phd but um yeah i i wish i had kept up um with the with this um, spe- uh, specific technique earlier and uh, better, uh, so I think stay try to stay tuned to evolving um, technologies and, and techniques, and um, keep a humbling attitude.
0: It's funny you say that. Many of the people I've interviewed have said similar things as well. Um, you know, you've got to learn data science and coding and programming, and uh, they all feel like they aren't doing it well enough so uh you're in good company <laughs> <laughs> that's that's interesting to hear that <laughs> well Pablo those are all the questions i have for you for today is there anything i missed or anything you want to add before i let you go
1: no i think we uh yeah no
0: i think we we covered
1: my experience in geology my brief experience in geology
0: you're a breath of fresh air in the university environment which can often be uh clogged with some big egos um <laughs> I think you're uh, very down-to-earth and humble, and um, I-, I think you are uh, very accomplished and should be proud of your work. Thank you for sharing your, your experiences, your passion, uh, your stories, and, and of course, your photographs, because they're beautiful. It's like stained glass from rock. Yeah, maybe that will be my legacy. <laughs> Thank you very much. Obrigado. Janada. For listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca/slash learn/slash podcast or listen on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.